You're listening to highlights from One Planet podcast interview with Mark Bergman, director of the Center for Environmental Policy at Imperial College London and editor-in-chief of the Journal of Conservation Biology. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. You know, the idea of expertise and expert judgment has been around and has been something that society depends upon for a long time, but there have been no serious empirical explorations of who's an expert and what a domain of expertise is and what sort of frailties are experts susceptible to. Those things haven't been addressed in an empirical way until the last 20 or 30 years. Some of this work began in the 50s with Kahneman and Tversky. They began to explore the things that make people misjudge risky situations. And that led to a, a body of research on who makes good judgments and under what circumstances for things that might affect us in various ways. But these were typically judgments about the probabilities of events and the magnitudes of their consequences. There's a domain in which we use experts to make judgments about future events, the quantities of things that we will see at some time in the future, or things that currently exist, but we don't know what they are. We don't have time yet to compile the data that we need. And we rely on expert judgments in law courts, but also rely on them. For example, we have a new disease like COVID, and we don't know yet its transmission rates. And yet we have to guess at its transmission rates to make judgments about how best to manage the population, to protect ourselves. And we rely on expert judgments for all of those circumstances. And yet we don't know who the best expert is. Who should we ask? Is it the best credentialed person? Is it the person that most people trust? If you ask two experts and you get two opinions, which one should you use? And so on and so forth. Now, that has been the focus of research uh, over the last 10 or 15 years. And we've learned some really important things that run contrary to our intuition about some of those things. So how do you identify the best expert for the problem at hand? So the, the fundamental question is, how do you know you have a good expert or how do you know who the best expert is? And it turns out that a person's credentials or their regard in which they're held by their peers is no guide to their ability to make good judgments, none whatsoever. And that's kind of confronting to the middle-aged experts in society who uh, hold sway in many circumstances when it comes to what we think this fact is or that fact is that we don't yet know or that we need to know. The things that we've learned and this is not our little group, our group has made some modest contributions. There's been a large number of groups around the world in the last 10 or 15 years working on this. And these are generally very robust results. The first is that your credentials and the esteem in which you're held are no guide to your performance on questions of fact or outcomes of future events. The second thing we know is that you shouldn't ask one person. You should ask a group of people. Another thing we've learned is that the more diverse the group, the more accurate the group's judgments are. Another thing we've learned is that it's important one asks questions of a group to avoid a host of psychological frailties that can derail group judgments, anchoring availability bias, dominance effects, various other things that are pervasive and can be debilitating unless one is aware of them and deals with them through the way in which a group is facilitated. Now, if you do those things, if you say to me, I've got a very good expert here and they're going to make judgments about these facts, I can tell you, well, I can use your expert in my group or not, but I can guarantee that if I get a group of people who understand the data and the jargon and the problem, I will generate answers that are closer to the truth 
and better calibrated, and we will outperform your individual expert consistently and by a considerable margin. And I can do that without knowing who the expert is or what they know. I wonder, are we on our way to winning this story of conservation and what role does synthetic biology play in conservation? There are probably five, six, seven million species on the planet. We have probably lost in the last couple of hundred years, one, two, maybe 3% of those. So you might think, well, that's not a lot, but we, in 200, 300 years, we shouldn't have lost any that we would notice. So the rate at which we are losing species on the planet far exceeds the rate in evolutionary time, the background rate, if you like. About one species a year arises through natural processes and about one species per year is lost globally amongst all things. And yet we've lost many, many, many more species than that in the last few couple of hundred years. We could say that we are at the leading edge of a mass extinction process. Now, there have been five or six of these in the geological past. The most recent one was caused by a comet landing on the Earth and eliminating the dinosaurs and a bunch of other things. We are at the leading edge of that. Now, in geological time, a few hundred years is very, very short. It's a very, very short period of time. If the processes that are currently in place and that are driving extinctions continue for another three, four, five hundred years, then we will have driven a mass extinction process of a kind that has only occurred five or six times in the geological past in the last many, many hundreds of millions of years. So, and we know the cause of this one, it's us, it's land clearance, it's moving species around that do harm, it's the movement of pests and diseases and pathogens between populations, it's over-harvesting, and so on. There's a bunch of drivers, we know what they are, we know what they're doing. It's, and I like to describe the, the analogy with carbon and climate change. We knew about the effect of carbon on temperature, global temperature, in 1896 when Arenas published his paper. In 1911, there were articles appearing in regional newspapers around the world saying, well, if we keep producing carbon at the rate at which we're producing it, and if the population continues to grow and the carbon emissions continue to grow, we should expect the global temperatures to rise by several degrees over the next several decades. So we knew that in 1911, but we didn't start to do anything until about 2010. We started to do little bits and pieces, but we really didn't start to try and do something significant. And we still haven't done enough, not even nearly enough to head this off. So there's a hundred years between knowing and believing and then doing something. Now, I think we know that we're losing biodiversity. That, that, that is not a question. It's not something that we can debate. It's like saying, is the amount of carbon going up in the atmosphere? The answer is yes. And the, you'd have to be, well, it's foolish not to do something. It's reckless not to do something. So we ought to act as though there is an imminent and substantial change in which the world's ecosystem function. Now, we don't know how resilient they are. We don't know how much loss we can tolerate and still, as humans, be okay. But we should behave as though it's imminent and start to do something now. The time to act is now and not in 50 or 100 or 200 years when we've lost 10% of things and we think, oh, this ecosystem's not functioning too well. What am I going to do about that? That's too late. That's too late. What for you are some of those things that remind you of the beauty and wonder of the natural world? You know, I'm not a spiritual person and I get into trouble with my siblings about this and various people I work with. I actually don't 
like going hiking. I don't like going camping. I don't particularly like looking at beautiful scenery. It's not, I much prefer being in a large city where there is, there's lots going on, which is anathema to, to many of my friends who love birds and things. But I think I'm a walking advertisement for for what's called existence value. It's really important to me personally that it exists, that it's somewhere, and that if I wanted to go and visit, I could. It really distresses me that landscapes are obliterated, as they are in Australia, as they are in the Amazon and many other places. We clear land still today, globally, at a rate that exceeds the imagination. And it's clear for agriculture, by and large. So land use change is still the primary driver of extinctions. It's still the critical issue, and it's driven by the combination of population size and per capita consumption. Those The links are clear. And, you know, that for me, the land use, the fact that land use change is driving this is what motivates me to persist in doing this job. But it also led to our work with expert judgment, which was really predicated by the fact that we were writing models about threatened species and we had parameters, various things we had to know about species to manage them, yet we didn't know. And we thought, well, how do we, where do we get this information from? We have to know it to make a decision. And yet we don't know it. So we guess. So we say, well, we consult an expert. That's what we all do. And we do it when we see our medical practitioner, our GP. We're doing the same things. I'm looking at a symptom. What's the cause? What's driving this? Now, what is it precisely that I need to do to alleviate this? Now, we're looking at this from the point of view of a species, managing a species. We were asked by our friends in biosecurity, how do I know I have the best expert? And we were wondering the same thing for our threatened species. And so we did some experiments. And that's when we found that asking the best regarded person is a mistake. You don't ask that. They're usually overconfident and they know more than not a, a random person from the street is not going to know enough. But if you're interested and you understand the data and the jargon, as we spoke about before, then your judgments will be as good as anyone else's. And then I've got a much wider pool of people I can go to, people who are interested, people who profess knowledge and insight. Get them together, talk to them, facilitate the discussion in a structured way and generate an answer. And that's we did that because we were interested in conservation problems, but it has implications for expert judgment in epidemiology and in medicine, in dentistry, in, in social security, in national security, in geopolitics. This question, these same questions and these same constraints arise. And so the results of that work are much more generally useful than just conservation. We hope you've enjoyed this program and listening to the highlights of this podcast. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast or learn more about environmental projects, click on the subscribe button. Thank you for listening.